This episode of the Windows Into the Bible podcast is brought to you by Windows Into the Bible University, the best way for you to continue studying and learning about the words of the Bible through the world of the Bible. With affordable monthly and annual membership plans, in addition to some incredible free courses and materials, Windows Into the Bible University is a resource like nothing that's out there. Courses are available online, on demand, with video and audio lessons, so there's no such thing as falling behind. You decide the pace you learn at, and we provide you with everything you need to study your Bible like never before. Some of our most popular courses include What is the Bible? Windows into the Bible, the theology of Jesus, and much more. These courses are expert-led with college-level learning and materials at a fraction of the college cost. We guarantee you'll never look at the Bible the same again. Enroll today at WITBUniversity.com. That's WITBUniversity.com. Listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. Reading the Bible with understanding requires reading the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. This podcast engages the spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual world of the Bible to help transform how you read and understand the Bible. Have questions or want to interact with Mark? Tweet us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. For more insights, information about the podcast, and bonus resources and notes for each episode, visit WITBpodcast.com. Now, let's get into today's episode. It's the Advent Christmas season again. The time of peace on earth, goodwill towards all mankind, glory and excelsis Deo, and even Santa Claus, if that's what you like. Maybe it's just me, but I'm hearing more cries this year than in previous years for peace on earth. Again, maybe it's just me, or maybe it has something to do with the last 24 months that we've all been through. But it seems like everyone is looking for peace. Peace on earth. Sounds wonderful. It's even biblical. The angels announced it to the shepherds at the birth of Jesus. But when I hear the word peace or peacemakers thrown around in our world, while it is biblical, I feel a bit like Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride saying, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. The greatest challenge for modern readers of the Bible is that we insert our culture, our meanings of words into the biblical language. It's natural, but it's not accurate. And while we keep using the same words, they do not mean what we think that they mean. So in the season where people call for peace and the making of peace, what did such a proclamation mean within the world of Jesus, within the world of ancient Judaism? Hi, I'm Mark. Do you ever feel confused when you read the Bible? Do you feel like you're missing things that the author intended for you to understand? 
Would you like to gain clarity and confidence in reading the Bible? Welcome to the Windows into the Bible podcast, where we use the world of the Bible to help you understand the words of the Bible. Now, listeners, especially to this season of the podcast, will be familiar with the background that I'm getting ready to address. But so that we're all on the same page, one of the things that is very key when we come to reading the New Testament is the fact that ancient Judaism was looking for redemption. Now, something unique about the Gospel of Luke from all the other Gospels is Luke alone uses the language of redemption. We see it in Luke 1, in Luke 2, in Luke 21, and in Luke 24. And that says something about Luke, his gospel, and the message. Redemption. Ancient Judaism was looking for redemption. Now, by the first century, Jews agreed upon three basic assumptions. Assumption number one. There's only one God and he's ours. The Greco-Roman pantheon doesn't exist. There's only one God, the God of Israel. Assumption number two, we are his chosen people. And that relationship is codified by the Torah, the giving of the Torah. So we express our chosenness through our obedience to the Torah. That's the essence of it. Assumption number three, only when we are free can we truly worship God the way that he wants us to. Now, what's interesting, we find this actually in Luke chapter one. Luke has what is called the Benedictus. It is a blessing on the lips of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. It's one of the appearances of the language of redemption. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown mercy, promised to our ancestors, and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we being rescued from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, did you pick up on some things there? Jewish redemption is national. But what national redemption provides for Israel is the freedom to worship God as he saw fit. Now, in an earlier episode this season, we talked about how the revolutions that take place within Judaism in the second century BC shape this thinking. When the Seleucids begin to persecute the Jewish people for obedience to the Torah, to the commandment, remember that thing that codified God's relationship to Israel as his chosen people? When they begin to outlaw that, figures like Judah the Maccabee believed that this was such a breach that only Israel's freedom, 
would protect their ability to worship God as God desired. And that's where we get this idea that only when we are free can we truly worship God. But here's the thing. Notice that national freedom, national liberty is also connected to Judaism's obedience of the Torah. In other words, redemption is political and spiritual. It's not an either or. So the question then became, when all of a sudden we find the Romans bouncing into the land of Judea in the first century BC, why are they here? What's our response to be to this? Because remember, there's only one God of ours. We're his chosen people, and we're supposed to be free in order to properly worship him. So how do we respond to Rome? And there are three basic assumptions that emerge within Judaism as to how to respond to this. The first one says it is a sin for us to submit to anyone as Lord other than God. Therefore, when Rome comes in trying to rule us, our response is to pick up the sword, to shed blood towards the achievement of our freedom and of our liberty. The end goal of that freedom and liberty is enabling us to worship God the way he wants. But it's our job to fight in order to achieve it. The second stream of thought said, look, God has predetermined the periods of the world. And he's even predetermined when the end will be. And he's even predetermined the rule of the wicked kingdom over his people. Our job during this period is to simply remain faithful and to kind of hunker down in our bunker and await ultimately the ending of this period, which will give way to his redemption. Now, this is where a lot of the apocalyptic circles found themselves almost this pacifism that says these things have been predetermined. Human action bears no outcome or effect on the outcome of redemption. It's something you go through and that you endure. And so these apocalypticists become more passive. And the worse that they see things or the more out of control that they see things in this world, it often means that they see that the resolution of this is going to have to be beyond even the realm of time in a more cataclysmic way. But it's connected to the end. So on the one hand, we have these militant activists and we have these apocalyptic pacifists. But then we have stepping in another stream of thought. It says, no, 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 no. We're here because of our sin. And therefore, because we sinned, we are being subjected to foreign rule. Well, how do you solve that problem? You repent. You perform acts of piety, prayer, fasting, charity. You call people collectively to repentance believing that God will respond to the repentance of the people by bringing about their redemption. 
And it's out of this stream of thought that we find the development and the coining of the phrase, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And again, we've discussed that during this past season on the podcast. So this third stream is saying, no, 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 no. Our response is to repent, to perform acts of piety. And in this way, acts of piety serve actually as a form of resistance to foreign rule. Prayer, fasting, charity, almsgiving, those are not just simply things that I do, but it's part of my active repentance seeking redemption. So these become the three main manifestations of Jewish ideas of re how redemption is going to be achieved. The goal is the same for all of them, more or less. Now, there's little variances, some nuances here and there that are different. Some tend to be seeing things in a more otherworldly fashion of, is in terms of redemption. Some tend to see it more specific and tied specifically to the Jewish right to self-govern in the land, but ultimately it's all connected to the universal appearance of God's reign. Now, here's one of the things that happens. Redemption then is connected to Jewish liberty, to Jewish independence, if I can dare say it, to Jewish nationalism. And where a lot of readers of the New Testament get tripped up is they want to say, well, the Jews were particular, but Christianity comes in as universal. Now, hopefully we'll kind of challenge that a little bit here in a moment, but it's not a particularism versus something that's universal or a nationalism versus a globalism, which is often how you find these kinds of discussions bifurcated in our world today. Rather, Israel's national independence enabled the ultimate appearance of God's rule and reign universally. But all of it was about his fulfillment of his promises to Israel's fathers. Now, how is it going to be achieved? Through the sword? Through hunkering down in my apocalyptic community, waiting for the end to come? or through actively pursuing repentance and acts of piety in order to achieve it. It's interesting that Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, basically talking about the blessings and curses of the law, which are articulated in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, he says this, And when Moses had recapitulated whatsoever he had done for the preservation of the people, both in their wars and in peace, and had composed them a body of laws and procured them an excellent form of government, he foretold, as God had declared to him, that if they transgressed the institution for the worship of God, they should experience the following miseries. Their land would be full of weapons and wars from their enemies, and their cities would be overthrown, their temple would be burnt, they should be sold as slaves to such men as would have no pity on them in their afflictions, that they would then repent when the repentance would no way profit them under their sufferings. Yet, said he, 
Will that God who founded your nation restore your cities to your citizens with their temple also, and you shall lose these advantages not only once but often. So understand what Josephus is in effect saying here. And of course, Josephus lives through the first Jewish revolt and the destruction of Jerusalem and so forth. He's saying, look, you're going to quit obeying God, quit worshiping God, and all these things are going to happen. You know, your land's going to be full of weapons, full of war. The temple's going to be destroyed. That's the opposite of peace. And it comes about, at least according to Josephus' reading here, because of Israel's disobedience. One of the things that we see when we begin to ask this question, what did peace mean within the world of ancient Judaism, which is the world of the New Testament? Peace does not mean this kind of idea that we have today of let's all lock our arms together and you know, engage in the brotherhood of humanity, where we all just get along. Peace is connected to these ideas of Jewish redemption. Now, in a past episode of the podcast that we did last season, we talked about the song of the angels or the proclamation of the angels that we find in Luke 2. Holy, holy, holy is the language of Isaiah 6, which stands behind the three-part hymn of Luke 2. Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, goodwill towards all mankind. And it's based off Isaiah 6, where we have these heavenly figures flying around God's throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The Aramaic translation of Isaiah 6 reads this way, Holy in the highest heaven, the house of his presence. Holy upon the earth, the work of his might. Holy for endless ages is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of the brightness of his glory. Do you hear the language of glory? Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. His favor towards all mankind. This prayer or proclamation of Isaiah 6 forms the heart of a Jewish benediction that goes back prior to the first century, what is called the Kedushah. The Jewish community still recites it to this day. And it begins, we sanctify your name in this world as it is sanctified in the highest of heavens. Sounds pretty similar to may your name be sanctified, may your will be done. And in addition to the sanctification of God's name, the holy, 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 this blessing connects with Psalm 146 and the proclamation of God's rule and reign. We even find another version of the Kedushah, what is called the Kedushah Disidra, which once again quotes from Isaiah 6, but it also quotes from Isaiah 59, and a redeemer shall come to Zion, to them that turn from transgression in Jacob. It concludes by quoting Exodus 15, 18, the Lord reigns forever and ever. The first time God's rule and reign is mentioned in the Bible, it speaks of God's glory. It speaks of God's peace. 
Peace then is not the absence of conflict. Peace is connected with God's redemption of Israel, the dawning of his reign. And this is not something that is purely political, but remember, there's the other side to it that is also focused on Israel's obedience to God's commandments. Ben Sira, a writer of the second century BC, the early second century BC, has a prayer of redemption in chapter 36 of his book. And in that, he says, lift up your hand against foreign nations and let them see your might as you have used us to show your holiness to them. So use them to show your glory to us. In other words, he's asking God, act against the foreigners, deliver us, which is his glory. Then they will know, as we have known, that there is no God but you, O Lord. Give new signs and work other wonders. Well, of course, we've talked about this before on the podcast. Jesus points to his signs and wonders as evidence that God's reign is breaking forth. In the Psalms of Solomon, a work that's written in the first century B.C., It says, those who fear the Lord are happy with good things. In your kingdom, your goodness is upon Israel. So notice again, we get this language of God's kingdom, his reign, his dominion. May the glory of the Lord be praised for he is our king. God's glory then, as ancient Judaism understood it, manifested itself in God's reign. One of the sectarian scrolls found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, what is called the War Scroll. It depicts this eschatological battle between the sons of light and the children of light against the children of darkness. So Qumran community and their enemies. And that includes both the angelic figures of light and the angelic figures of darkness. And there's actually in this scroll a prayer that is very similar to themes that we find in the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1 and also the Benedictus, which we read a portion of earlier from Luke chapter 1. But again, this prayer is calling upon God to enact his vengeance against the nations. And it says, by the hand of your anointed ones, the seers of things appointed, you have told us about the times of the wars of your hands in order that you may glorify yourself among our enemies. Again, God's glory is depicted in his defeat of Israel's enemies. To bring down the hordes of Belial, the seven vainglorious nations at the hand of the oppressed, whom... You have redeemed with power and with peace a wondrous strength. It seems odd that in the middle of this proclamation of God's vengeance being poured out against those who are in opposition to God and the people of God, that 
such action would be spoken of as God's peace. But again, peace is about providing Israel the freedom to worship God the way he desires, with no encumbrance from outside or foreign entities. In the book of First Enoch, we find in chapter 1, And to all the righteous he will grant peace. And over the elect will be preservation and peace, and upon them will come mercy, and they shall belong to God, and good will he will give to them, and all will be blessed. He will support and help all of us. Light will shine upon us, and he will grant peace for us. So notice, there's this expectation that peace is about people living in obedient relationship to God. It's not the absence of conflict. It's not, can't we all just get along? It's not even this idea of ancient Jews looking at the polytheists around them and saying, hey, let's just lock arms and feel good about one another and care for one another. No, peace was primarily about the relationship between God and Israel. If you're enjoying the Windows into the Bible podcast, I want to tell you quickly about another great and affordable resource that we offer to help deepen your study and understanding of the Bible. The Windows into the Bible Book Club and Bible Study is a virtual, on-demand book club and Bible study like no other. Each month, the Book Club and Bible Study reads a book chosen specifically to enhance your understanding of the world of the Bible. And that book is paired with a digital Bible study. It's all recorded and saved so that you can make progress no matter when you begin. For just $10 a month, every member of the book club and Bible study receives a Bible study, notes and videos delivered to your inbox three times a week, a members only Facebook group for discussion and more resources, two live virtual discussions with the book club each month led by that month's expert or author. All materials are available on demand so you can read and learn at your own pace. This is just the low stress, no fuss Bible study and book club that you've been looking for. It's designed to deepen your study and understanding of the Bible for just $10 a month. Go to WITBUniversity.com to join today. That's WITBUniversity.com. See you there. And that the peace that existed there enabled Israel to serve him rightly. In fact, we find in Isaiah 27, verses 4 through 6, this language of making peace. And there, the prophet speaking in the voice of God talks about, let it make peace with me, let it make peace with me. In other words, peace between God and Israel. 
the Aramaic translation, the Targum of Isaiah 27 says this, Behold, many mighty deeds are before me. If indeed the house of Israel sets before themselves to do the Torah, I will send my anger and my wrath against the nations who are incited against them to destroy them, just as fire destroys thorns and weedy land together. Or if they take hold of the words of my Torah, then peace will be done for them. So understand, again, Peace is connected to Israel's obedience of the Torah, which brings about God's judgment and punishment on the wicked who oppose Israel. From then on, peace will be done for them. They will be gathered together from among their exiles, and they will return to their land. In other words, then, the peace that's being spoken about in the angelic proclamation as we saw with the glory that is connected to God's reign and redemption of Israel, the peace then is also the peace that is made between God and Israel through Israel's obedience to his covenant commandments. There's a tradition that is found in the Mishnah where Rabbi Joshua said, I have received a tradition from Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, that's his teacher, and Yochanan ben Zakkai lived in the latter half of the first century AD, who heard it from his teacher and his teacher from his teacher as a halacha or a, a legal ruling given to Moses at Sinai that Elijah will come to declare clean or unclean, to remove afar or to bring near, but to remove afar those families that were brought near by violence and to bring near those families that were removed afar from violence. Now, what he's talking about is we have this mention of before the great and terrible day of the Lord in the book of Malachi, he will send Elijah the prophet. And it's saying that Elijah will bring back the scattered exiles. And the sages say, neither to remove afar nor to bring near, but to make peace in the world. As it is written, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, quoting from the Malachi passage. The great sage of the first century BC, Hillel said, be of the disciples of Aaron, loving peace, pursuing peace, loving mankind and bringing them to the Torah. Now, what he's talking about here, he's seeing a connection with the pursuit of peace. Again, that peaceful relationship between God and Israel in terms of the peace brought about by how a person cares for another. In other words, the way that Israel makes peace between itself and God is ultimately by how they cared for others who were like themselves. Now, does that sound familiar? In essence, this is the love God, love neighbor that we find within the Gospels. Again, we find Yochanan ben Zakkai, and he's interpreting the passage from Deuteronomy 27.6. Now, Yochanan ben Zakkai, as I said, lives in the latter half of the first century AD. He lives through the Jewish revolt. He lives when this militant spirit overtakes Judaism, right? We're going to raise up the sword, we're going to spill blood. And one of the things that we find in the pursuit of freedom, in the pursuit of liberty, 
that these Jewish rebels actually perverted justice. Now, this is kind of interesting when you look at the history of the concept and the language of liberty. It actually starts in Greece in the 6th and the 5th centuries BC during the Persian Wars. But ultimately, the concept of freedom, the concept of liberty within the Greek world becomes so abstract, it becomes a thing unto itself that during the Peloponnesian War, you have both Athens and Sparta literally perverting justice in the pursuit of liberty. Well, the same thing happens in Judaism, where these Jewish rebels of the First Revolt become so enraptured with the concept of liberty. That's what the end is, right? But remember what we talked about before, freedom was the means to the end of worshiping God originally within Judaism. But these groups become so fixated on liberty in and of itself that they even pervert justice against their fellow Jews. And Yochanan ben Zakkai lives through this. And so he's interpreting Deuteronomy 27, 6, which says, Behold, it says, you will build, talking about the altar, okay, where people would offer sacrifices, priests would offer sacrifices of whole stones. Now, in Hebrew, the word for whole stones or the phrase is avanim shlemot. And Yochanan ben Zakkai is going to play with this because at the heart of the word shlemot is also the root shalom, peace. And so he goes on to say, they are to be stones that establish peace. Now, by using the method of kol v'chomer, which is arguing from the light to the heavy, you can reason that the stones of the altar, they neither hear nor see nor speak. Yet, because they serve to establish peace between Israel and their Father in heaven, the Holy One, blessed to be He, said, you will not lift up an iron tool against them. So you remember from the book of Deuteronomy, God commands that the altar, the stones that make the altar where sacrifices are to be offered, no iron tool is to work against them. So what Yochanan ben Zakkai is going to argue here is because these stones are used in the sacrificial system, which helps make peace between God and Israel, and no iron tool should be raised against the stones, how much more then? Should he who establishes peace between a man and his fellow man, between husband and wife, between city and city, between nation and nation, between family and family, between government and government, be protected that no harm should come to him? So notice here what he's saying. Ultimately, the goal is to make peace between God and Israel. But the way that you do that is by how you care for your neighbor who is like yourself. His statement about not lifting up the iron against the stones is a critique of those who will take up the sword and spill blood in their pursuit of liberty. We find another sage by the name of Rabbi Eliezer, the son of Rabbi Yossi. And he asks this question, from which verse may we derive the fact that charity and righteous deeds are great peacemakers and intercessors between the people of Israel and their Father in heaven. It is stated, For so says the Lord, Do not enter their house of mourning, or go to lament or bemoan them. For I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord, namely my steadfast love and mercy. Quoting Jeremiah 16.5. Steadfast love. This refers to the righteous deeds. Mercy, this refers to charity. 
The verse then teaches that charity and righteous deeds are great peacemakers between the people of Israel and their Father in heaven. So notice what's being said here. These acts of piety, charity, righteous deeds that I show to others, in fact, make peace between Israel and their Father in heaven. Now, we've discussed this before. This language and this ideology is what stands behind Jesus' statement in Luke 19 when he weeps over Jerusalem, would today that you knew the things that make for peace, peace between God and Israel, which ultimately means peace and security so that Israel can worship God the way he wants, the removal of Rome, redemption. Well, what's the mechanism to achieve that? Acts of piety towards others. In other words, the idea of peace is not absence of conflict. The idea of peace is connected to Israel's redemption. And it's affected through obedience to the commandments, particularly caring for others who are, are like myself. I started out by saying that one of the unique things in Luke's gospel is Luke alone uses the language of redemption of all the gospel writers. He mentions in Luke chapter 2, these two figures, Simeon and Anna. The way he describes Simeon is he says, this man was righteous and devout. He was a Hasid, he was pious, looking forward to the consolation of Israel. About Anna, he says, she began to praise God and to speak about the child talking about the baby Jesus, to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. It's interesting that Luke's language here parallels the slogan that was written on the coins of the Jewish rebels in the fourth year of the First Revolt, for the redemption of Jerusalem, for the redemption of Zion. In the Bar Kokhba revolt that goes from A.D. 132 to 136, they put on their coins for the redemption of Jerusalem. So many scholars have been led to believe that the language of redemption is, is purely particularistic and nationalistic, and it is to an extent. But it wasn't only used by those who were seeking to take up the sword. Simeon and Anna show us that. In fact, Luke's text shows us that the yearning for redemption was held by those who we're pious. What is Anna doing? She's praying and fasting. Simeon is called righteous and pious. It's interesting also that the language that Luke uses, that they were looking for the consolation of Israel. The consolation. In other words, they were mourning the current state of things, yearning for Israel's redemption. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus isn't talking there about those who are sad. He's talking about those who mourn the present reality of Israel. Their comfort is the redemption of Zion. But Luke uses the language of Simeon and Anna that they were looking for the consolation of Israel. They were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And in Luke 23, talking about Joseph of Arimathea, who goes and 
takes the body of Jesus and buries it, Luke describes him as looking for, same word in Greek, the kingdom of God. And in this way, as we've said before, the redemption of Israel parallels the kingdom of God. They're connected. In other words, the kingdom of God is not something that is universal or spiritual, but it is tied directly into the national hopes of Israel's redemption that will be ultimately manifested in God's universal reign appearing throughout the world. I'll close with this. Simeon and Anna are reflective of a group that we find reflected in a a psalm that's included in the psalm scroll from Qumran that was found in cave 11. And in this psalm, it's called an apostrophe to Zion. Zion is the object of this psalm. And it reads this way. I remember you for a blessing, O Zion. With all my might do I love you. May your memory be blessed forever. Great is your hope, O Zion. The peace and victory you await shall come. Did you hear that? The peace and victory. Age to age shall you be indwelled. Generations of the pious will adorn you. They who long for the day of your salvation to rejoice in your bounteous glory. At your glorious bosom they will suckle. In your majestic streets they'll rattle their bangles. The faithful acts of your prophets shall you recall being glorified by the works of your devout ones. So notice this, the pious ones, the devout ones, their piety and devotion is connected to the salvation of Zion, the redemption of Zion. Purge wrongdoing from your midst, lying in iniquity be cut off from you. Your children shall rejoice within you. Your loved ones join themselves to you. How they have hoped for your victory. How your perfect ones have mourned for you. Blessed are those who mourn. Hope for you shall not perish, O Zion, nor shall your prospect be forgotten. Who being righteous has ever perished? Who has escaped in his sin? Man is tested as to his way, each according to his works. All around your enemies are cut off, O Zion. All who hate you are scattered. How sweet is the waft of your praise, O Zion, over all the earth. Again and again shall I remember you for blessing. I will bless you with my whole heart. May you lay hold of righteousness everlasting. May you receive the blessing of the glorified. Embrace the vision spoken of you, O Zion, the dreams of prophets sought for you. Grow high, spread wide, O Zion. Praise the Most High, your Redeemer, while my soul rejoices in your glory. As Christianity develops in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries, ideas of redemption become separated from what they meant within the world of ancient Judaism, which was the world of Jesus and Paul. Things become seen as inward, spiritual, universal. Oh, certainly there is a universal aspect to what we find in the New Testament. 
But that universal aspect is realized by people's alignment with the God of Israel and his moral will. When we think about the angelic proclamation, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward all mankind, God's glory in ancient Judaism is revealed in his kingship, in his rule, in his triumph over the wicked. Peace is not the absence of conflict where Jews looked at their polytheistic neighbors and their pagan Roman rulers and said, we'll live at peace and we'll all be okay and we'll all get along. No, peace was about Israel living free so that they could worship God as he saw fit. And peace was directly connected to their obedience to his commandments, particularly their love, charity, and action towards others like themselves. In a world like we live in today, where cries for peace grow stronger and stronger, and often people are pointing to the Bible, to the Magnificat, to the Benedictus, to the angelic proclamation, it would do us well, once again, to enter the world of the Bible and really understand what stood behind the yearning for peace. Jesus' call to be peacemakers. It's connected with his piety. And anyone who would take the call for peace or being a peacemaker and separate it in the lips of Jesus from his piety and his expectation of obedience to God is simply using Jesus of Nazareth as their own mouthpiece. And while that has been done throughout the millennia, that is not the voice of the Jesus of history. But when we enter his world, we can hear his voice in challenging and new and fresh ways. I'm Mark Turnage, and this is the Windows Into the Bible podcast. Check out our online on-demand courses at Windows Into the Bible University including our digital book club and Bible study. We help you know how to read the Bible, enabling you to learn, grow, and master Bible reading and study. By knowing how to study, having on-demand learning experiences, you can reclaim your time and study in the right way. Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the WITB podcast. You can comment and send us questions, which we will answer on a future episode.
Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Mark Turnage. We'll see you next time. We hope you're enjoying the Windows into the Bible podcast. If you are, help us out by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show. This helps the show get seen and heard by even more people looking to learn about the world of the Bible. And by subscribing, you make sure new episodes to the podcast show up in your feed as soon as they go live. Give us a rating, a review, and subscribe. And most of all, keep listening. It's Mark. One of the reasons I wanted to start the Windows into the Bible podcast was to show how, by accessing the world of the Bible, we can better understand the words of the Bible. This philosophy has been at the core of my entire career because I know from firsthand experience how knowing the world of the Bible completely transforms your understanding and study of the Bible. But nothing, not even a podcast, transforms how you read the Bible like actually going to the land of the Bible in person to experience it for yourself. Offering the finest on-site expert-led trips and experiences to the world of the Bible, Biblical Expeditions has taken thousands of Bible readers and travelers from around the world to the lands of the Bible with trips to Israel, Turkey, Greece, Jordan, Italy, and Egypt. If you are a church leader and are interested in organizing a trip for your church or interested in joining a group to the lands of the Bible, reach out and the Biblical Expeditions team can make that happen. Go to biblical-expeditions.com to learn more about Biblical Expeditions and upcoming trips and learn how you can finally transform your study of the Bible by actually going to the land of the Bible on a life-changing trip. That's biblical-expeditions.com. We use the world of the Bible to transform how you read the words of the Bible. been listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. If you have questions related to this episode, tweet them to us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. You can also find resources related to this and other episodes at WITBpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.